Well, we're going to look at the very last passage in the book of 1 Peter. This is our last week in this series. Next week, we're starting a five-week series called Naturally Supernatural, and it's going to be about how to, how to walk in the supernatural power of God. And we're going to do that from, uh, in part from the book of Ephesians, but some other books as, as well. So really excited about that, about that. But this is the last passage in 1 Peter. And so I want to start off by saying that um, I love my Apple Watch. So um, my, my dad um, wondered if I would want an Apple Watch for my birthday many years ago. Wasn't that many years ago, because the Apple Watch hasn't been out that many years. But, and I said, you know, I don't really think I need an Apple Watch. I mean, I like my, my smartphone. I, I can tell time with my smartphone. And uh, my dad said, I'm going to get you a watch. So I got the watch. And what I realized was the watch measures things that are important to me. The watch measures how long I sleep at night. It measures my heart rate. It measures, uh, I don't really use it for this reason, but if you, if you fall down, it measures that you fell down. And it can call 911 if you want it to call 911. I love the fact that I can measure all sorts of things about my exercise, about the quality of my exercise. Because what you can measure, you can improve. And I, I love that about using this watch. Well, um, we all do that with certain aspects of our, of our health. Take blood work, for instance. You know how this works. You, you go to the, to the doctor. He says, got some blood work for you. You go to the, your friendly, friendly phlebotomist. I had to think about how to pronounce that. And they, they take vials of blood. And then you come out with a printout that tells you all sorts of things about the chemistry of your body. What you can measure, you can improve. Now, aren't you glad you don't live 300 years ago where blood work meant an entirely different sort of thing where they would lance your body and drain you of blood? So if the doctor in 1719 said, we need to do some blood work on you, you'd say, no way, I'm running as far as I can the other way. Blood work was the reason why George Washington died and why Wolfgang Mozart died. Oh, darn, two great people. We just killed them through bad blood work. The point is, you know, what you can accurately measure, you can improve. But what about measuring spiritual growth? Is that even possible? Well, you know, you don't measure spiritual growth with quantitative measures like profit and loss statements and metrics and miles. You don't do it that way. What you do is you look at qualitative things like what is the quality of my love? What is the quality of the fruit of the Spirit that's coming out of me? What is the quality of my relationships? Am I a person who's being filled with the Holy Spirit? Am I progressing toward maturity? You can't measure those things numerically, but we are called to test ourselves and see how we're doing in those areas. And so Peter is encouraging the same thing here. As he closes his book, he wants to give us four measures of spiritual growth. These measures of growth are measures that are not like every possible measure you could have. I, don't, I doubt you could come up with something like that. But these are measures of spiritual growth that are relevant to people under pressure. Peter's been talking about people under pressure, people who are persecuted, people who are suffering. 
And so these measures of spiritual growth specifically apply to people who are going through hardship, afflictions, and trials. So I want to I look at these four measures of spiritual growth, and let's see where you fall as we look at these measures. Number one is this. Growing Christians seek out wise leadership so they can continue to grow. Are you seeking out wise leadership so you can continue to grow? Here's what he says. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Now, I need, I need to tell you a little bit of background about, about this verse. Peter comes to Northern Asia Minor, and he is starting some churches. Now Peter writes a letter to the churches in Northern Asia Minor. And when that letter came, it was a circular letter, meaning the letter came and it was read in the churches, read out loud. So now as this letter is being read out loud, he's addressing those younger believers in the congregation. And he says, I want you to have an attitude toward the older believers. Now, who are the older believers? Well, some of them are people who came to Christ at Pentecost. And they came back to Northern Asia Minor. And so they've, they've been walking with Jesus for about 30 years. And they're mature. And Peter, Peter is saying, look, I want you younger believers to pay attention to those elders and be highly responsive to their leadership. Now, you could take this command in two ways. On the one hand, you could, it's, it's possible saying, younger believers, obey your elders. Obey your elders. Now, when he talks about elders, don't envision, you know, a dozen guys in, in dark suits looking over building plans and profit and loss statements. Don't envision that. Because these elders in the, in the early church were people who were discipling and mentoring younger believers. Amen. It was a very proactive sort of, of, of eldering. And so I think what Peter is, is saying is, you younger believers, be receptive to the opportunity of being mentored, coached, discipled by an older believer. You younger believers, be willing, be willing to be mentored and discipled by the older believers. Now, to understand this a little bit more, you have to understand something about the Greek word for be subject. It means to voluntarily rank yourself under somebody else. Like maybe in the military. You know, you're, you're a private. And you're, you're ranking yourself below your commanding officer, not voluntarily in this case, but you're doing what he or she tells you to do. This is a voluntary thing. Younger believers, I, I, I want you to voluntarily look toward those older believers and say, I can learn something from that person who's been walking as a Christian for 30 years. I can learn something, and, and I want to I grow under that person's coaching and that person's discipleship. This is incredibly relevant for the year 2019. I say that because... Uh, one of the trends that I notice in reading different periodicals is that those who are in the millennial cohort are interested in being coached by people who are older. And the statement that I hear in the literature is, gray is the new gold. <laughs> yeah. Millennials want people who have a little bit of gray hair, maybe no hair, as the, case, as, the case, uh, as the case may be. Here's an article from, 
Harvard Business Review on mentoring millennials, and it just talks about how, how interested millennials are in being, being mentored. So what I think he's talking about in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse uh, 5, <clears throat> part of verse 5, is if you're a younger believer, seek out an older believer to be coached by. And if you are uh, a younger believer, an older believer who's got some spiritual growth, be proactive about coaching somebody else. You know, I find it interesting that this is a very different concept than you had in the 70s or the 1960s. Here's Pete Townsend of The Who. And Pete Townsend, in one of his songs, says, I hope I die before I get old. It's the song, My Generation. Who's that guy in the right? That is a very old Pete Townsend who did not die, at least as of the time that picture was taken. And, you know, in the 60s, it was uh, don't trust anybody over 30. That was Jack Weinberg. And that was picked up by Jerry Rubin and the, uh, and the yippie movement, yippie leaders. Don't trust anybody over 30. That is completely passe today. Younger people are wanting to be mentored by people who are, are older, and it's a tremendous opportunity that we, that, that we have. So here's my, here's my quick takeaway. My quick takeaway is that if you are an older believer, don't think, well, I, I might be able to do this next year. You got to take another class. Got to read another book. <laughs> got to do a little bit more. Got to get a little bit more prepared. Don't think that way. You are prepared now. In the, early, in the early church, people came to Christ, and they very quickly mentored somebody else. Now, I started thinking back to my college experiences. I was mentored by a guy named Pat Dillon. Pat Dillon was 25 at the time, and I was 18. And Pat was spiritually mature in some ways, spiritually immature in other ways. And he... He would admit that today. Nevertheless, he was faithful to disciple me and mentor me. And I am eternally grateful for what he did. Every time I'm in Dallas and I drive past the Denny's on 75 south of Mockingbird, I think about Pat. And the the mornings he spent with me, 6.30 on a Friday morning with four or five other guys. And I text him at the stoplight. I say, Pat, thank you for investing in my life. I so appreciate what you did. If you're, growing, if you're a growing believer, you are willing to be a mentor or you're willing to be mentored. And so that's why I encourage you to seek out this class that Mike Sorensen is doing. That is a great way to move into that stream of discipleship that Jesus cherished so much. Here's a second mark or measure of spiritual growth. Growing Christians are skillfully managing their emotions under pressure. They're managing their emotions under pressure. Uh, Verse 6 and 7, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, these, these verses presuppose something. They presuppose that Christians go through seasons of uncertainty and anxiety. 
Thank you for that amen, because all of us have gone, have gone, gone, gone through that. No matter how spiritually mature we are, we're still human. We still live in a fallen world. And sometimes our bodies will hijack our mind. Our bodies have cortisol and adrenaline. And, you know, back in the days where everybody was working outside, everybody was working in the field, everybody was doing hard manual labor, you could take that cortisol, that adrenaline, and you could, you could express that physically. Now, a lot of us are, you know, sitting in offices or not as physically active as we should be. And so our bodies get hijacked by cortisol and adrenaline. And it's like our minds are racing like crazy and our bodies are tense. We don't know what to do with it. That's anxiety. And a lot of people encounter anxiety these, these days. We live in a culture that breeds anxiety. There was an article in New York Times called, I uh, uh, wish that PowerPoint was a little bit bigger, but it says, Prozac Nation is now the United States of Xanax. And, and what their point was is that, you know, <clears throat> it used to be uh, that what depression was in the 1990s, anxiety is to the 2000s. Everybody is, seems to be encountering anxiety. So there have been times where I have stood up here and talked about my past bouts with anxiety. And every time I would do that, I would have people come up to me and say, Rod, uh, I've never told anybody else this. But since you said this on Sunday, and you don't seem to be ashamed of it, I have gone through terrible bouts of anxiety where I thought I was going crazy. This is a, this is a thing. And if you are growing in, in Christ, what you're doing is you're learning to manage these emotions. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes, sometimes what happens with, with Christians is that they, they think, well, I shouldn't feel anxiety because of Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Like, isn't anxiety a sin? Be anxious for nothing but everything with prayer and supplication, with requests. Uh, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God is going to come to you. Isn't it a sin to be anxious? Like, if I just pray about it, won't the anxiety go away? That is not the point of that verse. The invitation of Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and 1 Peter chapter 5, is an invitation to a spiritual discipline a spiritual discipline of managing your emotions and your anxieties on a regular basis in a way which is going to bring you into a place of serenity. I say this as a spiritual discipline because of the, of the grammar of this command. The grammar, humble yourselves, is something that you do on a regular basis. I'm constantly doing this. I'm constantly casting my anxieties onto him because he cares for me. So the prescription for managing your emotions in this verse is threefold. The first one is we humble ourselves. We humble ourselves. That means we turn away from self-sufficiency. And let me tell you, part of self-sufficiency is not engaging in catastrophic thinking. Because a, a lot of times in anxiety, you know, we, we engage in catastrophic thinking. Why do we do that? There's a reason, and the reason is that I can stay in control. If I, can, if I can catastrophize what might happen, 
I stay in control. I go, I knew this would take place. I'm prepared. But catastrophic thinking destroys serenity and it increases anxiety. So part of humbling yourself is self, I am not going to give into catastrophic thinking. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to humble myself before you, God, and I'm going to say, you are in control. And I'm going to live under your sovereign care and control. And then second prescription is that I cast my anxieties on him. This is a wonderful word picture because the idea is here, here are my anxieties on the ground. They're, they're just they're ugly, gross. They, uh, they smell. They're on the ground. And I'm thinking, oh, I just I, I hate these. And these are, these are messing with my serenity. The idea is that I'm, I'm going to take these anxieties and I'm going to bundle them together. I'm going to put them into a bag. I'm going to cinch up the collar of the bag. I'm going to take these anxieties. I'm going to take them and I'm, I'm going to swing them around and I'm going to cast them onto to God. God the Father, my Abba Father who loves me. I'm going I'm to cast these onto God. And the, the word picture is that God is going to take these anxieties and he's going to handle them for me. Amen. Well, that takes some imagination to be able to visualize that. But people who handle their anxieties well say, uh, okay, this financial thing, this, this marriage thing, this child thing, I'm putting that God in the sack and I'm going to cast that onto you. And then the third part of it <clears throat> is that we embrace the reality that it really, really cares. Because it's really easy for the evil one to say, God doesn't care about you. Look what happened in your life. How could you say God cares about you? That was a terrible thing that happened. You think he loves you? Really? You, you reject that way of thinking and you embrace the reality that I have an Abba Father in heaven who loves me unconditionally and I am going to reckon on his love no matter what is going on around me. And again, this requires a really healthy imagination. You know, Christians simultaneously are the best imaginers and sometimes the worst. If you look at the history of Christian art, it's not Christian art, it's just art history. What you realize is that the great movement imaginatively is Christianity. On the other hand, sometimes it's very easy for us as followers of Jesus to go, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to visualize. Is it even right to visualize things about, about God? And what Peter is doing is he's inviting us into the world of our imagination so that we think, I'm going to bundle this up, cast it onto God. I'm going to visualize God the Father carrying this for me with love. You know, I, it helps me when we go visit our, our grandchildren, which we did last week. It helps me because uh, it gives me such insight into how I wanted to be as a dad and insight into how God the Father is. And both of our grandsons were just really sick. With nothing horrible, just colds and sniffles and flus and things like that, which means our son and daughter-in-law got sick, which meant Cindy and I got sick. Okay, it's part of the deal. You take that as a grand grandparent. But our little, grand our little grandson, you know, over and over again would say, Mama, I'm sick. Mama, I'm sick. 
and, and he would just snuggle into our daughter-in-law. That's what God does for you. God, I'm, I'm anxious. And you snuggle right into the God the Father. He says, I'm, I'm going I'm to take that. I'm going to take that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to handle that. And that leads us to a, to a third mark of spiritual growth. Growing Christians are learning to engage in spiritual warfare. Here's what he says. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Resist him. Firm in the faith. Now, I love the word picture he uses. He uses again. It's the word picture of the lion. But notice, notice how in our culture, we have become people who are skeptical about the good supernatural and we're fully accepting of the bad supernatural. The bad supernatural is a source of entertainment. We're always thinking about the, you know, not always, but I mean, a lot of people are thinking about the bad supernatural when they watch TV shows or when they watch movies that feature out-and-out evil. But then when it comes to the good supernatural, we think, ah, I don't don't know if that really applies to me. You know, love the bad, doubtful, skeptical about the good. And therefore, a lot of American Christians are very very skeptical about spiritual warfare. Do, Do I even know how to pray a spiritual warfare prayer? This is not the way it is in other places around the world. Cuba, Nigeria, places in India. They're all very aware of spiritual warfare because they deal with it. They battle it all the time. What Peter is saying is if you're under pressure, you need to know how to pray spiritual warfare prayers. So here's the picture. Your adversary is like like a lion prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. That is one powerful creature. And we have a dual word picture in 1 Peter chapter 5. We are that cute little thing on the left, right? Little defenseless, little lamb. And our adversary is the lion on the right. Who has the advantage, humanly speaking? Obviously, obviously the lion has the advantage. Now, you know, back when, when Peter was writing this, um, lions were sort of declining in the land of Israel. Today, obviously, it's a fully industrialized nation, and lions are in zoos, but they're not roaming around Israel. But lions, lions were still in northern Asia Minor at that time, and people could visualize what that, what, what that would be like. So let's think about what it means for us. Um, first observation is that we have an invisible adversary. That puts you at an automatic disadvantage. If your adversary is visible, maybe you've got a little bit more control, but um, our adversary is invisible. Therefore, we need to learn to do spiritual warfare by faith. That means we believe it's a real thing, and we know by faith how to put on the armor of God, which is Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll talk about that more in a second. Second observation is your adversary is always on the prowl. Now, we went to a zoo in Africa, as I I mentioned before, and there was the lion in the zoo, and this lion was a very sleepy, docile lion, and I'll be honest with you, there was not a whole lot of um, not a whole lot of space between me and the lion, which I enjoyed because I could see the lion. But I mean, he was one docile, quiet lion. 
I'm going to go in there and give him, give him a little hug, you know? <laughs> but we all know that's not the case. Um, I was out jogging when this happened. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> that's not me. That's not me. But that is a guy who was uh, out, you know, and doing some things, and he doesn't look like he's running very fast. <coughs> but if that was me, I'd be feeling some, super, some, some stress because that lion is prowling about. Sometimes you've heard about lions that uh, don't like you being near their space and they come and attack your car. Uh, I have seen YouTube clips where little kids are up at a glass and the lion wants to attack the child. Yeah, it's crazy. That video is, uh, the video I'm showing on the screen, that went viral because you obviously realize that if there was no glass, that kid is toast. So you are like that child, and the evil one is like that lion, and he's seeking whom he may devour. He's constantly on the prowl. And then the third observation is your adversary is naturally much, much stronger than you. I'm told that the muscle tissue in a big cat is something like six to seven times stronger and more powerful than the muscle tissue in a human. So he's just fundamentally stronger than, than you are. Humanly speaking, the evil one is stronger than you. Humanly speaking. But let me just say that you have one thing that absolutely terrifies him, and that is you have Jesus. And he is terrified of that. And therefore, although you are naturally not as strong spiritually in Christ, you are stronger. And so uh, Peter's response to us is really surprising. We don't, we don't go on the offensive because Jesus already went on the offensive and he defeated the evil one. What we do is we, we stand and we resist. Stand comes from Ephesians chapter 6. We stand. Resist comes from 1 Peter chapter 5. We resist. To stand and resist means we stand in the power that Jesus has given to us. And so one of the things that I do often is pray spiritual warfare prayers that address this. And here's, here's my, way of, my way of standing. I'll just read this. This is a prayer that I pray often. Father, right now I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. Firm in the faith, I now do spiritual warfare. I command all fallen angels on assignment against me to leave me now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You go where the, Lord, where the risen Jesus would send you. Now, I'm, I'm praying that because I have authority as a believer priest to address the evil one like Jesus did in Mark chapter 5, not on the basis of my power at all, but on the basis of his power. Sometimes I'll, I'll continue like this. I declare that no fallen angel has any authority over me or my family. I'm seated with Jesus in heavenly places. I am a believer priest. You must go now in Jesus' name. You must go to the place where he sends you. You will not come back. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I first started doing this, which was decades ago, it was, it was a, little, uh, you know, a little strange and awkward for me to do this. And, and what, I've, what I've found is that when, when I do that, I feel this, this surge of confidence that God is in control, that he's working supernaturally through me, that the risen Christ 
by the authority of his atoning sacrifice, is working in me to resist, as, as Peter has commanded us to do, to do right here. <clears throat> One story before I, I give you the final, the final measure. At Grace, we have a thriving healing prayer ministry. And I've known of several who have uh, gone, we, we do two kinds of prayer. We do healing prayer, we do deliverance prayer, which is really, we call it freedom prayer. And in freedom prayer, somebody comes and they say, you know, I've, I've been through a bad patch in my life, and I've, I've encountered some really hard things, I've done some, some rough things, and so I, I, need, I need freedom. And so we will go through a series of prayers that, that include confession and repentance, and then prayers where we close off that, that stronghold that the evil one may have put in their life. And what's been so interesting is the response of people to the freedom prayers, saying in some cases, like, like I, can, I can look at my life, and that date is a milestone in my life. I was, I was one way before that, I was another way after that, but that was a, a milestone in my spiritual growth. Growing Christians are learning how to do spiritual warfare. And then the final measure of growth is growing Christians are learning to suffer with courage in God's power. Peter says this, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter's informing us that at some level, suffering is going to happen in the Christian, in the Christian life. Um, grammatically, this is not simply just tied to the suffering of persecution, Grammatically, this is tied to the suffering that happens because we live in a fallen world. And all of us are going to encounter some measure of affliction, hardship, difficulty, and trial. We're resident aliens, Peter says. We're citizens of heaven who are living out our lives here on this earth. And what God loves to do is break through in our suffering. After, a little, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. In God's sight, most of our sufferings are temporary. They're finite. They happen for a season, and then they're over. And God loves to show us his presence and power in the suffering so that he can give us his fourfold ministry. And notice the four words, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. That's a fourfold ministry that he, that he gives to us. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. When we go through hardship, affliction, trial, suffering, he wants to minister those four conditions in our life. Think about how this happened with Peter. Peter denied Christ three times. And there were weeks where Peter's thinking, where am I with Jesus? Like, like I, I locked eyes with him in my third denial and I don't know where I am with Jesus now. And Jesus in John chapter 20, 20, 21 restores Peter, confirms, strengthens, and establishes him so that he, again, is the leader of the disciples. Are you glad that Peter went through that suffering? Yes, yes. Because Peter's example, to me, means that if I go through something that is difficult, I got a second chance. 
And so this is a real, real encouragement that, you know, suffering is for a season, but in that, God is committed to restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing us. So with, with that in mind, let's look at some, uh, some key ideas and takeaways. Key idea is this. Growing believers are encountering God in the context of authentic communities that are seeking transformation. We're encountering God in the context of authentic communities that are seeking transformation. And I just want to zero in on this idea of authentic, of, 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 uh, authentic communities. Discipleship is designed to be lived out in community. You know, if you have the ability to take your hardship and pain and struggle and bring it into community, and you have people in your community who say, yes, I've been through similar things. God has given me victory in this area. What does it do for you? You know, it, it strengthens you, builds you up. It encourages you. It encourages you. So here's, here's takeaway number one. Decide, and I'm, I'm talking about right now, whether you are a disciple maker or whether you need a disciple maker. Here's what I'm asking you to decide right now at 1021 on a Sunday morning. Right now, as I'm sitting here, am I more of a disciple maker or somebody who needs to be discipled? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I need both. I'm asking you to choose between the two. Am I primarily one who can give out or am I primarily one right now who needs to receive? Here's my second application. Ask God to connect you with someone for the purpose of a discipleship. So if you just said, I'm somebody who is equipped to disciple somebody, ask God to connect you with somebody who needs to be discipled. Say, God, I am praying that you would supernaturally lead me to someone who needs to be mentored, coached, or discipled. I don't want it to be my choice. I don't want it to be a human choice. I want it to be a supernatural choice. And I want you to show me who that person is. It may mean that you have to, uh, you know, knock on some doors. It may mean that you have to talk to somebody and say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in being a spiritual mentor, being a spiritual coach. Is that something you might be interested in? That, that might be something that you have to do. But it's important to ask God to do that. If you feel like you need discipleship, say to him, Lord, I, I, will you please bring somebody my way who could disciple me, mentor me, coach me? It's such an important thing in, in your spiritual growth that you are giving out and that you're receiving. And then here's a, a third takeaway. Third takeaway is, as you encounter discipleship, create a culture of authenticity. If you're mentoring somebody else and, uh, and you're never showing any weakness or you're never giving any window into pain in your life, you're not, you're not doing this very authentically. Authentic disciple makers are talking about their struggles, their hardships, their difficulties, and that gives a window into the person they're coaching about how a strong believer handles problems. Amen. Authenticity is a crucial component of discipleship. And, I, you know, I'm thankful that grace is not this way, but I've, I've, I've talked to many people who have been in churches where there is little to no authenticity. And the idea is I can show no weakness, 
no struggle, no affliction, because if I do, people are going to judge me and say, you're not wrong with Jesus. See, mature people are learning how to be authentic and live in that space of spirit-empowered authenticity as a form of ministry. So um, I want to uh, invite you to stand for our closing prayer.